Hello and welcome back to Let the Stone Speak. This is a podcast where we talk about the latest in biblical archaeology. I'm here with archaeologist Christopher Eames today. Hello, Brent. Chris is one of our writers uh, for our magazine, Let the Stone Speak. This is a magazine that covers biblical archaeology. It's produced by the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology here in Jerusalem, Israel. And it is available for free if you're interested in getting yourself a copy. Our latest edition talks about the discovery of Joshua's altar up on Mount Ebal, as well as a, a curse tablet that was found there recently. And we also have articles that detail and revolve around the Exodus period because we are coming up to Pesach, the Days of Unleavened Bread. And Chris here has written an article entitled Searching for Egypt in Israel. And so we're going to be talking about some of the really interesting facets of this article today. I would like to consider your uh, really uh, interesting approach to uh, looking for evidence of the Exodus a lot of people have a different way of looking at this, purely, I guess, looking for material evidence of the Israelites in uh, inside Egypt, but you take a different approach. Perhaps you can uh, describe how you do that in this article. Sure. Well, uh, good to be here again, Brent. Thanks for having me on. And um, wh when it comes to a lot of these articles that we write, uh, a lot of what we do is looking at archaeological discovery, digs, new discoveries that are being made, and how they relate to the Bible. Now, going about it that way, you can get a lot of information as to whether or not the Bible is accurate in its portrayal of that history, but you can't get quite as good an idea of when that history was written in the Bible. So this requires kind of the opposite approach, a deep dive into the biblical account and then seeing how that matches with the existing archaeological record. And when it comes to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that's really a critical element, not just did these things happen or not, but was this written about in the time period that the Bible says it was by a mosaic figure who lived in the second half of the second millennium BCE? That's a really critical part of the account. And uh, it's, it's over the past few centuries, uh, growing popularity has has been given to this theory that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, weren't written during the period that the Bible says Moses was on the scene during that second half of the second millennium BCE. But in fact, it was written centuries, if not a millennium after in the, in the first half of the first millennium BC, uh, or even later on into the Hellenistic period. And many even put it put the Torah after the prophets. Mm -hmm. So so this is a big question. When was the Torah written and can we find evidence of it? And putting aside the archaeological discoveries for the events, can we actually within the Torah find evidence for the time period in which it was written? And I think that's that's something that, that there's as we'll cover today, there's a lot of really fascinating evidence for it when you look at it that way to see actually putting to putting to the side the discoveries relating to Israel and Egypt what if we look for those Egyptian elements that have been transferred across language and and things really unique to this specific second millennium BCE period in time in the Torah itself or in other words Egypt and Israel so let's start that as you say and go through some of this uh, internal evidence, I suppose, from the Bible itself and the first five books to show that it was written uh, around the same time period as the events purport to describe sometime in the 15th century is when we would say, 
uh, and what the Bible says as well, you start going through different... Um, you've got showing how the geography fits in, how the names fit in as well. We're going to start with how some of the phraseology inside the Exodus account and the first five books in general really uh, match with a, with an early writing of this. Sure. Well, uh, just to frame this conversation as well, there's a lot of debate about when the bi- when the biblical Exodus took place. There's the, the debate about was it 15th century, was it 13th century. So in general for this article, I've kept it to the New Kingdom period. So you, the, that this argument is not going to right. play into so it. So the New Kingdom period basically covers from 1550 BCE to about uh, 500 years later, 1050, 1075. So that's the New Kingdom period in Egypt, Egypt's history, which would include both uh, both theories. So in general, we're looking for corroboration. If 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 the description of Egypt, the description of these events, the description, the the use of phraseology matches with this time period. And as you mentioned, the first uh, the first subject I get into in this article is phraseology. And um, there's a lot of great study on this subject that has been done by Professor Kitchen, Professor Hoffmeyer, um, Benson and Hess that I quote in this in this article. And and some of it relates to this phraseology, especially to the phraseology in the Torah. So, for example, you've got the ubiquitous use of uh, the enemy being destroyed by a mighty and outstretched arm or by a mighty right hand. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting phrase because it is only used in an Exodus context. It's used throughout the Bible in, in large part in in the Torah, but it's only used in an Exodus context. Context, And you could ask yourself, well, that could be used for any context, really, right. destroying your enemy by a powerful and mighty right hand. So why, uh, it gets the question going, why is it just used in this context of an Exodus? Well, it turns out that this is a, this is a key Egyptian phrase of the New Kingdom period. So this phrase sort of comes into vogue in the early part of the second millennium BCE. You start to see it there with the, um, the Middle Kingdom period in Egypt, but it becomes a very popular pharaonic phrase during specifically the New Kingdom period. There's pharaohs that are called um, names that include that, that element, the, the mighty arm or the mighty, mm-hmm. the mighty hand, the pharaoh of the mighty hand. There's poetry and, and that type of thing that uses this reference. So you see this really key, in this case, this really key phrase that matches with its use during the specifically the New Kingdom period. But it's really neat because in the Bible you see it flipped on its head. You see God praised for destroying the Pharaoh with his mighty and outstretched right, hand. Right. So you see, you see it flipped like that, but also the use of that phrase really is uh, quite a neat shadow to mm-hmm. what was a common phrase at that time period. Now, another example is the destroying of your enemies like chaff or like stubble. And this this uh, descriptor, this this phrase as well, is only found in New Kingdom period Egypt. Only found in New Kingdom period Egypt. It's not found in any other kind of archaeological context anywhere else. I believe it's uh, from the Kadesh poem 
from the New Kingdom period, um, the 13th century BCE, has a reference to destroying your enemies like chaff. And we see this phrase appear in the Bible from the book of Exodus onwards, mm -hmm. from Exodus 15. So you've got some really key phrases that are specific to a, a that, that, that go back to a very specific time period in Egyptian history. And then when you look at the wider accounts, so take Deuteronomy, for example, the book of Deuteronomy, um, the, it, as we mentioned at the top of this program, it's kind of come into vogue that maybe this was a later book, maybe 7th century it was kind of imagined. And some of these, some of the skeptics point to uh, the conclusion of the book of Chronicles, Deuteronomy 34, it talks about Moses's death and mm -hmm. burial. And they're like, well, how, how could Moses have written that about his death and burial? It's obvi obviously the Torah wasn't written by Moses, which no one's saying that Moses wrote that. Right. That's obviously a, an editorial edition later on. Uh, but when you take the book of Deuteronomy as a whole and compare it to texts throughout the ancient world. Deuteronomy is Moses' final address to the people of Israel. It's, it's, um, he, he's laying out uh, his final wishes, commands to the people of Israel. And what's really neat about the book of Deuteronomy is it matches clearly 2nd millennium BCE, late 2nd millennium BCE, treaties that have been found all throughout Mesopotamia, the Levant, especially those found uh, belonging to the Hittite Empire. There's quite a few that have been found and preserved from them from the second half of the second millennium BCE. And the layout of these treaties, these suzerainty treaties, they're called, matches exactly with the book of Deuteronomy, starting out with the preamble, going through a historical background, treaty stipulations, invocation of witnesses, onto a deposition of a written copy of the treaty, and then concluding with curses and blessings for obedience or disobedience to that treaty. And Professor Kenneth Kitchen, he went through nearly 40 different examples of these treaties or, or similar such that directly match to the book of Deuteronomy. And based on that, he says, there's no way that this was some imagined um, account, script, whatever, from the mid-first millennium BCE. This is clearly a text from the late second millennium BCE. So that's some of the broader uh, context in which it was written, I suppose, the phraseology as well. You go on to talk about the geography uh, that the, the first five books of the Bible uh, mention and how that too reveals an intimate knowledge of Egypt and an Egyptian perspective, uh, when it, how it's written, rather than, let's say, a Judean perspective reflecting back. Can you give some examples of that? Right. So if, 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 this, if the Torah was written by, a, by Jude, late Judean authors, you would expect them to have a better knowledge of Judah and the geography there and kind of more of a hazy uh, image of Egypt at this time. But instead, we find exactly the opposite, which fits directly with the biblical account. A mosaic figure who was born in Egypt, grew up in that kind of princely setting, but yet wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. So we see the, we see the reverse in, in the Torah, and that matches with discoveries on the ground as well. And several, several points mentioned in the Torah would be totally redundant 
to a late writer or a more more Judean familiar writer. Like you've got um, descriptions of the the land of Canaan mentioned in reference to what they're like to play what places are like in Egypt. Mm-hmm. So this place in Canaan, which is a lot like this place in Egypt, you've got uh, like one most arbitrary statement that Shechem is. Uh, Genesis 33 verse 18 says that Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Well, obviously Shechem's in the land of Canaan. For a late writer, that's like your most major city. It'd be like saying New York, which is in the land of America. Um, For late writers, that would just be the most redundant statement. But for a figure writing in the second millennium BC, an Egyptian-based figure, that just makes sense you've got several several statements like that and then the familiarity as well with with particulars about Egypt so the author of the Torah knows that you could put a basket in the Nile River and it'd be fine with a child in it you couldn't do that with the Jordan River for at least at least a good portion of the year Mm -hmm. Um, you've got the the author of the Torah, Torah mentioning gardening practices in Egypt and how different it is, it, or it would be from the the practices in Canaan, or the more natural practices, because you get more rainfall in Canaan, so you don't need to have all of these mm-hmm. gardening practices specific to Egypt. Uh, so you've got a lot of really neat particulars like that, and even the the things that aren't mentioned. So Ju- Jerusalem is nowhere mentioned in the Torah, nowhere mentioned by that name, but it's mentioned nearly a thousand times throughout the rest of the Bible. So if late authors were writing about it, why didn't they use this name in the Torah? Because the Torah does mention the region that includes Jerusalem in Genesis 14, Genesis 22, but it never names it that way. It it only takes on that name from the conquest period, from the book of Joshua, as you've got the Israelites coming into the land. So based on what is mentioned, as well as what isn't mentioned— it really fits with what the Bible says. You've got an Egyptian-centric account looking out towards Canaan versus a, a, a Judean-centric account, kind of with a hazy understanding of, of Egypt or an Egyptian perspective. And then you also, kind of following along from geography, you also look at the flora and fauna that's mentioned, uh, even going as specific as to the Exodus accounts about what they were eating, what the Israelites lusted after uh, from Egypt, and and that too uh, fits well within this context. Right. So regarding what the Israelites were eating, there's the passage in Numbers 11 verse 5 that talks about the Israelites longing to go back to to Egypt and to have the leeks and the onions that they were eating. And this really matches quite beautifully with a statement by Herodotus, the Greek historian, who actually writes about traveling to Egypt and being toured around a a pyramid in which there was an inscription on the wall of this pyramid in ancient Egyptian, Egyptian hieroglyphics that says that the workmen were fed leeks and onions so there's a real match with even just the food that was that was given to the the Israelite slaves, but beyond that as well, you've got the you've got Leviticus 11 and I believe it's Deuteronomy 14 talking about the clean and unclean foods, kosher and non-kosher foods, and this was given to this information was was given to the Israelites 
as they were leaving Egypt. And a lot of the animals that that are specifically enumerated are native or specific to Egypt or the Sinai. None of them are native or specific to Israel. Hmm. So with the with Deut- Deuteronomy 14 and Leviticus 11, you've got principles for determining clean and unclean foods. But then uh, you'll remember there's a lot of specific animals, and those specifically enumerated animals are what is the Israelite slaves would have been familiar with and witnessed in the Sinai or in Egypt. Whereas you would expect the reverse if this was a late work or even none of this information at all if this was a late work um, uh, written during the first millennium BCE. Uh, you have other details like materials used. So acacia wood is mentioned quite a lot in the Torah for the building of the tabernacle. And this is a wood native to Egypt and the Sinai. It's not native to Israel. And there are own, uh, I believe it's mentioned several dozen times throughout the Bible, most of which are in the Torah. I think I think 30 times in the Torah and then four times elsewhere. And in those times where it is mentioned elsewhere, it's not referring to um, a, a, a wood in Israel. So you've got this really specific commanding of a use of wood that is the only wood you could find in this area that would enable you to build what is required in the Torah. And it's specific to this region in which they actually were. So it really strange strains credulity to think that all of this was kind of made up centuries, a thousand years after the fact. And then you go into, which I think is a really interesting part that I've always kind of been puzzled by and irked by myself talking about some of the names that have been, that are used in the, in the first five books. And specifically you bring out the example of the very vague generic term of Pharaoh uh, that is used, and you talk. This is just one of your examples uh, in this section under the names or the lack thereof that are used uh, in the in the first five books. So, how does how does that relate again to this uh, this new kingdom of Egypt rather than uh, a later writing? Sure. Well, when it comes to Pharaoh, it's a title everyone's familiar with, obviously, and it's an incredibly vexing thing for modern historians to try and figure out who on earth was the who's the Pharaoh, Pharaoh of the Exodus. Of the Exodus. And far from it being a sign of a clueless author, I mean, if, if, if all these other things are so specific and exact that we've gone through already, finding the name, any name of a pharaoh in Egypt from this time period would be the easiest thing. Just go and get some kind of a pharaonic chronology and pick a pharaoh if you're making this up. It'd be the easiest thing of all these things we've discovered to get. But actually, if we look at the New Kingdom period, this were, to, to not use the specific name of the pharaoh, but to use the title of the pharaoh, this was a practice specific again to the New Kingdom period. So from the 1500s BCE onwards, you have this term Pharaoh start to be used. And then um, and then getting up to about the end of the New Kingdom period, around 1000 BCE, that, that name falls out and you have, the, you have the, t- the, the personal names of the Pharaohs used. So if the Torah, let's just say, was written during the time of Joseph, way in the past, during the time of Abraham, you would expect 
that would be impossible, but you would expect <laughs> the pharaoh to be named. Right. And conversely, if it was written way after the fact, during the first millennium BCE, you would expect the pharaoh to be named. But during this window of the New Kingdom period, you would not expect the pharaoh to be named. And that's exactly what we find. As frustrating as it can be to historians, that's exactly what we find, that the pharaoh isn't named. So you would say finding yeah, finding a name on the pharaoh attached to the Exodus would be like, well, that's probably a sign that this was written in a later time. Right. If anything, that's a sign that, yeah, this was written at a later time. So what about some of the other names? I think Moses' name himself is, is quite famous, and people might know that's of, of Egyptian origin. Perhaps you can talk about that and then a few more. Sure. Well, Moses or Mose or Moshe in uh, Hebrew is pretty pretty well known to link to to Egypt. Um, it's a name that mean that means born of or to be born of, and it's a name that we find quite frequently during the New Kingdom period, especially during the New Kingdom period. And you find the name element in numerous other pharaohs' names or officials' names. You've got Tutmos, Amos, Amenmos, Ramos, Wajmos. Ramses is another one, and you've even got the name by itself, some high officials called Mose or Moses. Um, so, so Moses is a pretty well-known example. But then you've got others as well. You've got Aaron or Aharon in Hebrew. So uh, this, this is a pretty well-known name for, for the meaning being unclear as to what it means in Hebrew. But it matches pretty closely with an Egyptian name, meaning uh, lion warrior, Ahara or Aharo, um, meaning lion warrior with the, with the added N suffix on the end. You've got Moses and Aaron's sister, Miriam. So the name Miriamon was a common name in Egypt, meaning beloved of the god Ammon. So Mary being beloved. So perhaps Mariam was just a clipped form of Mariamun um, from from that period as well. So you've got you've got these names that match quite incredibly, but but as you talk about it as well, and as applies to these other things we've already discussed, the lack of certain names that are mentioned uh, are notable. So the name Baal. Uh, this was obviously uh, uh, during during the Judges period and onwards. Basically, as soon as Israel enters Canaan, this is the big problem for Israel. Judges period, monarchical period. Baal is the big problem. Everyone's worshipping Baal. There are numerous names that include the Baal element, yet there's nothing in the Torah about this. If it was written during the mid-first millennium BC, you'd expect there to be warnings about Baal or some kind of link to Baal. But Baal is actually only mentioned once in the Torah and at that as a place name for Canaan. Mm -hmm. So it's not specifically warned about or anything like that. Whereas you've got this uh, near ubiquitous use of the term and the God uh, during later writings. And by the same token, you've got the name of God as well, Yahweh. So from the judges period or the monarchical period, especially onwards, numerous names include that element, Hezekiah, Jeremiah, uh, including that, that name element. Whereas as the historian Craig Davis writes, you have no names from the Torah that include that element. 
So he, he does qualify that by saying you've got Joshua, but even Joshua's name was changed right. later on. And the explanation for that is quite easy. It's given in the Torah itself. Uh, Exodus 4 and 5 talks about God revealing himself to Moses by the name Yahweh, saying that your forefathers have not known me by this name. So the name for God is included throughout the Torah, but you don't have that name element with the people themselves. So this is quite easily explained by the fact that while Moses was the author of the Torah, God revealed himself to Moses by that name, but the people in general weren't aware of it to be able to be including it into their names or their place names. And we find this matching with the archaeological record as well. There was a uh, archaeology writer for Haaretz who actually criticized this point, saying the lack of evidence of Yahweh worship among slaves in Egypt shows that the Israelites weren't slaves in Egypt. <laughs> Whereas it actually proves the biblical account because right. they didn't know a God by that name and thus weren't worshiping him by that name. So if the inverse, like you say about the, the Pharaoh, if the inverse was the case, if you were finding this, this thorough worship of Yahweh in Egypt among slaves, that would be evidence against yes. the Bible potentially. Right. Well, we actually have so much more in this article, but we're not going to get to it. Um, perhaps it can be something that we can tease people with so they can go and read the article themselves. This is called Searching for Egypt in Israel, uh, written by Chris in the latest edition of Let the Stone Speak. I'll just, this is your second uh, to, or third to last paragraph. I'll just quote this and then we'll go. It says, Who then should be most logically. Who then should most logically be identified as the scribe of the Torah? When was its composition? Evidence for the Exodus events themselves aside, the internal linguistic data remarkably and consistently establish that the Torah was written during the late second millennium BCE. And so this is something that is, I think, thoroughly uh, really proven in this article. And you quote a lot of really distinguished uh, Egyptologists and, and linguistic scholars uh, related to this early period in your article. So people can definitely get a great summary of their work as well, I think, in this article. So thanks very much for joining us today, Chris. No problem. Please, everyone, if you want to receive this uh, magazine, Let the Stone Speak, go ahead and write your emails to letters at armstronginstitute.org requesting the magazine, or you can go to our website, Armstrong institute.org and just go up to the top to publications and then magazine and you can put in your own details there to make sure you get a free copy. Thanks very much for listening.